Thank you so much for checking out the Connect Church podcast. We hope you're encouraged and inspired by this week's sermon. So let's jump right in and check out this week's message. We've been in this series called We Are Connect Church. And last week we, we started talking about why the Bible why is it that we preach the Bible? Why is the Bible so foundational and such, such a ground-laying work in the life of our church? And, and I, love, I love preaching about the Bible. I love preaching from it, but I also love preaching about it. But to open up our message today, I have to go here, okay? And that is, I gotta share with you some corny Bible jokes, okay? And, and, and I, just forgive me, okay? I'm gonna share with you some corny Bible jokes just to lighten the mood a little bit in the midst of flu season. And here's what I need you to do. I need you to dig in and I need you to laugh even when it's not funny, okay? I need the awkward laugh. I need your encouragement. Don't leave me hanging up here, okay? When I read these to you, I mean, these are really terrible. You may, you may say, well, Anthony, I've not, been, I've not been in the church for a long time. I don't know all these biblical people you're talking about. Trust me, even if you do, they're not funny, okay? These jokes are just that bad. But I'm gonna go there, okay? You're right, hey, church, why couldn't Jonah trust the ocean? Because he knew there was something fishy about it. See, isn't that terrible? Like, thank you for the fake. There's a really good fake laugh over here. Thank you. This one's pretty good and morbid at the same time. Who was the greatest financier in the Bible? Noah. Because he, <laughs> it's terrible. He was floating his stock while everyone was in liquidation. Anyway, I don't here, here's my favorite out of all of them. What excuse did Adam give to his children as to why he no longer lived in Eden? Because your mother ate us out of house and home. I love that one. That's probably my favorite. Uh, what kind of man was Boaz before he married? Ruthless. That's good, right? Play on words, puns. I'm just gonna skip that one. Anyway, what animal could Noah not trust? Cheetah. Okay, here's the best one. Who was the greatest comedian in the Bible? Anybody? Samson, because he brought the house down. Like, see, that's how corny these are. These are how terrible these jokes are. But here's the reason why I did that. There is, listen, while the jokes are bad, this book is good. And listen, there's a whole lot more than laughs than we get out of this book. In fact, we find in this very book in the Bible we find life. We find life. And so in our pursuit to answer the why behind what we do in order to excite and encourage people to ask, how can we be a part of what God's doing in the life of this church? We camped out on a pretty cool passage of scripture several weeks ago, and it's Hebrews chapter 10. Now, the author of Hebrews is writing to a group of Christians and who are struggling in their faith, and here's the reason why. They've converted from Judaism to Christianity. They're following after Jesus. But in doing so, they have found that their own communities, that their own families are ostracizing them. They're pushing them outside of their homes. They're pushing them outside of their communities. And for some Christians, it was just too much. And so they were reverting back to Judaism and they were leaving the church. And so the author of Hebrews writes them and he challenges them this way. He says, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as some are in the habit of doing but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. And he's writing to encourage and to challenge them. And what's amazing about these meetings, a lot of things took place, but what we know was central and what was celebrated in the life of these meetings was the very word of God, the teaching of the apostles. 
And so in week one, we asked this of our study, We Are Connect Church. Why church? Why gather together? Why the assembling of ourselves together? And here's what we begin to uncover through passages like Hebrews chapter 10. That when it comes to gathering together as a church, it is not an option for the believer. It's a matter of obedience for the believer. Not a, I have to obedience, but I get to type of obedience. And here's how we framed up our conversation on week one. That God created us from community. That God created us for community. And that God has saved us to community through faith in Jesus Christ. And that church is important, but the question becomes, but what are we to do with church? Are we just to exist? Or does God expect anything else of us when we come together and we gather together? And so we too, we ask this question, why serve? And we framed up this idea, and we understand this from Scripture, that saved people serve people. That in the life of our church, it's so important that you and I roll up our sleeves, that we get our hands messy, our hands dirty, in the lives of people in order that people may come to find Jesus, and in order that people can be made whole by Him. Saved people serve people. In week three, I think of another aspect of our services as we gather together, and that is we sing. We just spent 25 or 30 minutes singing about Jesus and singing to Jesus. But why do we sing? Why is it important? And I love this. I jotted this down uh, just a couple of weeks ago when we talked about this. And the idea that worship is more than just a moment, but a mosaic of moments. That throughout life, Worship is not just singing or just coming to the church, but, but honestly, in our everyday as a believer, there are, there are many moments of worship, a mosaic of moments, but one of which is singing and one of which we practice here. I jotted this down. There's something whereby which the character of God can be revealed. The doctrine of God can be reinforced. The joy of Jesus reiterated all while the child of God rejoices and all of this can be found in singing. Colossians 3.16 teaches us. We are connect church and here's the deal. We sing. We sing to make much of Jesus. And last week we began to answer, ask the question, why this book? Why, why the Bible? Why is it so foundational? Why does it lay the groundwork for all that we preach, all that we sing, all that we do? And here's what I wanted to remind you of. When you hold this book in your hand, you're holding a compilation of 66 books, 39 Old Testament, 27 New Testament books written over a period of over 1,500 years by more than 40 different authors from 14 countries spanning across three different continents. When you hold this book in your hand, you realize the authors range from shepherds to fishermen, from soldiers to governors to kings. And they came from different cultures, different backgrounds, different times in history. And here's what they give to us. These books that comprise the unified, the inspired, the infallible, the incredible word and story of God. When you hold this in your hand, you are holding a very miracle of God. So why this book? And last week we talked about the greatest apologetic when it comes to the Bible, and that is this. Why this book? Because it is real, it is reliable, and why is it those things? It's because Jesus' resurrection is undeniable. The Bible is reliable because of the greatest miracle it props up, and that is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And we've come to this place today where we go, still, why, why this book? Why, why the Bible? Why is it so foundational? I love what a Charles Spurgeon said about the Bible. He said this, the word of God is like a lion. You don't have to defend a lion. All you have to do is let the lion loose, and the lion will defend itself. That's pretty good, isn't it? And the lion will defend itself. And here's what I challenge us to do today as we continue to look at this miracle that is the Bible for you and I to come together, understand the miracle that the Bible is so that we can let it loose and we can unleash it in our own lives 
in the lives of our family, in the lives of our community, in the lives of people all across the world. The Bible, why this book? Now, as we talk about this book today, I want us to talk specifically, how, how did these 66 books come together? Have you ever wondered that? Like, why these 66 books? I hear rumors that there's other books floating around. Why is it just these 66? Why just 39 old and why 27 new? And so we're gonna answer that question with why this canon of scripture? Now, I just used a word that you may not be familiar with, canon. Now, if you were to ask me when I was younger what a canon was, it was that military gun that would shoot a big ball, right? I wanna tell you a story. I don't even know, we should probably cut this live feed. I don't know, um, I'm nervous. My sister-in-law, we were in a prayer meeting. We were 20 years old. I love my sister-in-law. Don't tell her I told you a story. Anyway, we're sitting in a prayer meeting at Pastor Glenn Metz's house. And there's about 20 or 30 of us college students. And we're just praying for God to move. And, and I'll never forget, she was sitting next to me. So in the prayer circle, it came up to her to have a prayer request. And we had a dear friend of ours that was fighting over in Iraq. And he was, I mean, he was in charge of some pretty incredible ordinances, all that good stuff over there. And she said, I want to pray for him because he's, he's overseas shooting cannonballs and things like that. And I went, what? Cannonball? What? And so literally she's sitting here telling the story. And, and I was thinking in my mind, Anthony, just, just pray after, just stop and pray because you don't want to say anything. You want to hurt her feelings. So, so it got to me and I just said, you know, guys, I just want to stop. And <laughs> I just want to thank God that the United States of America has more powerful weapons than cannons nowadays. And that we, and that was stupid. I shouldn't have done it, right? I, that, was, that was a bad move on my part. And, and anyway, after some counseling, I got better. And, and anyway, she took, but, but here's the deal. When I speak of cannon, I, I'm not talking about a military machine, a military weapon. What I'm speaking about is the measure by which you and I have this incredible miracle called the Bible right before us. Here's what the word cannon means. The word cannon literally means in the Greek, a measuring rod or rule. So what was the criteria? What was the process? What was the measure used for these books to be understood and recognized as the books of the Bible? And we're gonna talk about that. Now, first, we're gonna ask the question, where did the Old Testament come from? When you look at the 39 books of the Old Testament, why are they there and where did they come from? And here's what we understand to be true, that Moses in Deuteronomy, would meet with God. And there in Exodus chapter 20, in places in Deuteronomy, and all throughout his five books, Moses had meeting after meeting with God. God spoke to Moses audibly, but nowhere more important than we find in Exodus chapter 20, where God himself is chronicled in 20 and chapter 31, where God himself personally and supernaturally wrote his law, the 10 commandments with his finger on some stone tablets on Mount Sinai. And then Moses would later place them in the Ark of the Covenant. There we begin to understand how these 39 books began to be because whether it was Moses or any of the other great prophets, God would raise up men and God would speak to those men and God would speak through those men and women in the Bible and God would raise them up and they would be, they would be told by, by many people, man, how do we know that you're of God? How do, how do we know that this message is of God? And what's we, what's, what we watch unfold in the Old Testament is moment after moment, time after time, God would send miraculous signs and wonders to validate the very men who would one day write scripture. And all of a sudden, all of these events come together and all of these great prophets come together and they write their story of God. And that's how these Old Testament 39 books came to be. Now, Anthony, what about 
other books. What about the Apocrypha for a moment? If you were raised in the Catholic Church like I was, you'd go to the Old Testament. You'd realize there were no different books in our New Testament than the Catholic Bible's New Testament. But you would go to the Old Testament, you would find the Apocrypha, 11 to 12 books, depending on how they would divide them. 11 or 12 books that were in the Catholic Old Testament that aren't in in the New Testament that many of us hold here today, or the Old Testament that many of us hold here today. So why is there 11 or 12 more books in their Old Testament than ours? Well, they're called the Apocrypha. And here's the deal. They're not in our Bible for a reason. They're not in our canon of scripture for a reason. And let me just share with you one of those reasons. First of all, let me give you an example of teaching from the Apocrypha. In 2 Maccabees chapter 12, verses 41 through 45. By the way, don't try to find that in your Bible. It's, it's in the Apocrypha. It, the doctrine of purgatory is introduced. Now, if you were raised like I was in the Catholic Church, purgatory was an important place. Why? Because when people died, that was the place I thought that they would go to hang out so that they could either make it to heaven or hell one day. I'd I'd be good enough to pray them out of a place or their family would would pray them out of a place. It was a purging place between heaven and hell. And it was taught in 2 Maccabees chapter 12. But here's the problem of the idea of purgatory. That purgatory contradicts the teaching of Scripture and the truth of Scripture, even as Paul would teach us in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 8, that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And yet we find a teaching in this apocrypha, these 11 or 12 books in the, in the Catholic Old Testament that, that carry a lot, a lot of doctrine that don't line up with the rest of the word of God. There's a reason why the Apocrypha, these 11 or 12 books are not in our Bible and it's a good reason. Now here's a couple of things I wanna note too as we move on towards the New Testament about the Apocrypha. There's a couple of things you've gotta consider. The Apocrypha was never cited, was never quoted by Jesus or any New Testament author as being authoritative scripture. Much of the Old Testament was but never the Apocrypha. And also note this, historically, those 11 or 12 extra books, the Apocrypha, were never, ever accepted by Jews. They were rejected by Jews as being the inspired revelation of God. There are only 39 books in the Old Testament for a reason, and for a good reason, because God inspired 39 books of the Old Testament. That's how our Old Testament came to be, through the word of God, through the prophets and his people. But what about the New Testament? Where did the New Testament come from? How did we get these 27 books, these gospels, these letters, and these books in the New Testament? Now to answer that, we've got to stop for a moment and we've got to talk about the inspiration of scripture. This word inspiration, that is, that's absolutely powerful. And I want you to make sure you've got your heart grabbed around. Now, before we talk inspiration as well, I want to read you a quote from a wonderful pastor by the name of Adrian Rogers. Listen to what he says. He says, when the child of God loves the word of God and sees the son of God, he is changed by the spirit of God into the image of God for the glory of God because he's found the truth of God. Isn't that good? Man, I love that statement from him. Here's what I understand. And here's what we know to be true. You and I don't need to be informed about the word of God. We need to be transformed by it. And as we look at inspiration of how this Bible came to be, we also look at its transforming power. So let's look together. Um, Let's look at Paul as Paul is talking about the Old Testament. Oh, there's the quote there. It was really good. Paul is talking about the Old Testament here in 2 Timothy while writing the New Testament. Really cool here. He says this in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, that all scripture, now notice the word, is God breathed. 
It's where we get our word inspiration from. And it's useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. You notice the word here, God breathe? What that means in the Greek, it means forcefully born along. So let me paint a picture in your mind real quick, okay? Imagine a massive ship and all its sails are let down and and the wind begins to carry that ship along. The wind begins to fill the sails of that ship. And here's what we find, that it's being pushed along, guided and carried by the wind. That is the very picture that is painted in the heart and the mind of someone who reads that word in the Greek of God breathe, forcefully born along. And here's what we begin to see, that the Bible, as was in its writing, being driven, directed, and carried along by God, as they were writing. I, I love this quote from Vody Bauckham. Now, I wanna say this. I don't, uh, I don't agree with everything Vody Bauckham says. He's kind of one of those guys you, you eat the meat and spit out the bones kind of guys. I don't agree with everything, but I love his characterization of the Bible. He says this about the Bible, that the Bible is a reliable collection of historical documents written down by eyewitnesses living during the lifetime of other eyewitnesses. They report to us the occurrence of supernatural events. These events took place as fulfillment of specific prophecy and point to the Bible Bible's divine origin. Man, good. That's a good, it's more than the B-I-B-L-E. Yes, that's the, this is a really good explanation of why we believe what we believe about the Bible. Another note about inspiration, I love what Ron Rhodes wrote here. He said, the original documents of the Bible written by men who though permitted to exercise their own personality and their literary talents, wrote under controlling guidance of the Holy Spirit. Watch this, the result being a perfect and airless recording of the exact message God desired to give to man. Guys, that's just some insight into what this inspiration process looked like and how it was played out. Hear me, the 39 Old Testament books and the 27 New Testament books that we know of as scripture is God breathe. I oftentimes hear people say this, Listen, if you can't trust the Bible, you can't uphold the Bible as truth because it was written by men. These are the same people who came to that very conclusion by reading and studying textbooks in school written by, you guessed it, men. Written by men. Here's the problem even with that entire argument. Here's the difference. The Bible wasn't merely written by man. The Bible had its origins in the very heart and the mind of God. And man became the very instrument God would use to share his message and story with the world. I love Second Peter here. As he wrote, Peter wrote, he said, prophecy or scripture never had its origin in the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So when we begin to talk about the word of God and being inspired, we recognize this, that it was driven and directed and guided by the very spirit of God. And that these books that you have before you are the very books that belong in the word of God. I can share with you this, that archeology span has never unearthed a contradiction to any biblical account. In fact, archeology span gains more credibility as each new finding corroborates the word of God. I can share with you this morning that although the Bible is not a science book, Job said the earth was floating in space. Isaiah said that the earth was round. And Jeremiah said the number of stars could not be counted long before science ever declared these truths. I can share with you this that there are hundreds of prophecies fulfilled in the Bible, 300 of which came true in Jesus alone, which is statistically and probability-wise impossible, but made possible by God. 
When I think of the Bible, I, I love what one author wrote. He said this, if a historian or scientist has a good word to say about the Bible, it shouldn't give you any more faith in the Bible. Watch this, just a little more faith in the scientist or historian. The Bible has and will stand the test of time. Why? Because these 66 books, they are God breathed and they are the inspired word of God without question. So why not other books? When we talk about the New Testament and, and how it came together, how we got these 27 books. Why not other books? Why just these 27? You might hear people say this. Well, well, part of the reason I don't believe the Bible or there should be other books is because it was really just councils of men that came together and put the Bible together and chose what would be and wouldn't be in the Bible. And I respectfully disagree. And here's why. It was God not church councils that determine what books were in the Bible. Church councils simply recognized what books of the Bible were inspired by God. I've heard it said this way, and this is a really good quote for that argument. You ready? I've heard it said this way, a book's authority is established by God and was merely discovered by God's people. It wasn't councils that said what was the word of God and what wasn't. It was God himself that inspired his word. I found this note from Vance Havner, an old preacher from yesteryear. He was talking about the church councils. And he was talking about the Nicene Council in particular. This was an important council that came together to talk about church doctrine. And listen to how he described this council that met in 325 AD. He said, of the 318 delegates that attended this council, fewer than 12 had not lost an eye, lost a hand, or did not limp on a leg, lamed by torture for their faith in Jesus Christ. Isn't that amazing? He just described the crowd at one of these council meetings that you had men who were scarred and beaten and tortured for their faith in Jesus Christ. And what we uncover is this. These were men, many of which, who loved Jesus, served Jesus, and came together to make much of Jesus. But they didn't give the Bible its authority. These 66 books already had their authority from God because he wrote them. He inspired them. So how did, how did we get these 27 books then? How, what is this canonization? Remember, not the, not the gun, but this process, this measuring up. How did these 27 books come to be? Well, there's a couple of criteria that they met. And here's number one. You ready? For a book to be included in the New Testament canon, it needed to be authored by an apostle or a close companion of the apostle. Now, James and Jude being brothers of Jesus that came along later in their faith are the only unique part of this. But in the New Testament, writings must have been dated to the apostolic age. M meaning this, it must have been written by somebody who had walked with Jesus, who knew Jesus. Somebody who was a companion to those who had done so. Any other writing would be under false pretenses. Here's the second thing. The book or the letter, the gospel, must have been complimented, must have complimented, not contradicted, previous revelations or teachings about the doctrines of God and Jesus and Scripture. Here's the third thing. The books had to have been widely accepted by the church. Hey, by the way, the 27 books in the New Testament were. Here's the fourth thing. The books must have bared fruit of divine inspiration. The, the power of God must have driven the words of the Bible. And the words must have been living and active as Hebrews 4.12 says to us. Now I want to say this. It has been noted that the Bible we have today 
and I want you to take this, was recognized as the word of God by the apostles, by the first century church, and most importantly, by Jesus. But what about other books? What about other gospels? Why were they not included in this New Testament canon? Why were they not included into the New Testament? Well, let's consider a popular gospel, the Gospel of Thomas. Not found in, in the New Testament, but a lot of people love the Gospel of Thomas. Well, let's, let's run it through this test real quick. And here's what we're going to find. It fails the test. Do you know when it's dated? It's dated nearly a century, a hundred years after the original Gospels and the time of the Apostles. By the way, after Thomas himself died... It, it doesn't stand up to the test, does it? The gospel of Thomas comes 100 years and many years after the, the apostle Thomas himself had died. It's almost as if we saw in the news on Monday that Stan Lee, the founder of Marvel Comics, just wrote a brand new comic book this weekend. He died. It's impossible. We would give it no credibility and so too do we find that with the gospel of Thomas. Here's the second part that failed. It, it contradicted previous revelations of God and his word with verses like this. This is an actual verse from the Gospel of Thomas. Every woman who will make herself male will enter the kingdom of heaven. Huh? Let me read that again. Every woman who will make herself male will enter the kingdom of heaven. This is problematic on many levels. But let me tell you why it's most problematic. Because it contradicts the very value that God places on women. It devalues women of whom Jesus was a champion of. So first and foremost, and that's completely off base. Here's the second part of this. The kingdom of heaven is found in God's grace through Christ by faith and faith alone. Not by the outward appearance of things. Not changing from one gender to the next as if possible. Salvation is found in Jesus and Jesus alone. So it contradicts the whole of the word of God. Here's the third place it failed. It was pretty for common for someone to hijack a name of a famous apostle and to, write, to try to write something from them to gain notoriety for their writing. But this gospel from very early on was condemned as heresy and not one of the 27. And here's the last part. Man, for these books to be in the New Testament, they had to have the very power of God with it. The gospel of Thomas was void of power. It was powerless. Thus, it was not of God, but of man. Hear me with certainty. People say, do you really believe that the Bible is, is the word of God? Do you believe that God really, God inspired these 66 books to come together? And I go, without question. Because here's the deal, I believe Genesis 1-1, that in the beginning that God created the heavens and the earth. And I, I think of this of a God who is so powerful and amazing in his creation, and I don't limit him to say that this very same God cannot inspire and write a book. He can create the complexities of an atom and of a universe, and yet he can't author a book. I mean, I believe the Bible to be the very word of God without error that contains his message and his story. These 66 books are the inspired word of God. Now I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read to you just a real quick statement from our, um, our beliefs. If you were to go online to our church website, you would find this written out. And this is what we believe as a church. And we're winding down. Here's what we believe as a church about the Bible. That the Holy Bible is written by men, divinely inspired as God's revelation of himself to man. It is a perfect treatise of divine instruction. 
It has God for its author, salvation for its end, and truth without any mixture of error for its matter. Watch this. Therefore, all scripture in the original autographs is totally true and trustworthy. It reveals the principles by which God judges us and therefore is and will remain to the end of the world the true center of Christian union. These scriptures are the supreme standard by which all human conduct, creeds, and religious opinions should be tried. All scripture is a testimony to Christ who is himself the focus of divine revelation. And that is where we stand as a church when it comes to the Bible. Now, there's the argument out there that some people say, well, the the Bible is only reliable in the original letters that were written by the apostles or the original text. And, And I hear that in the original autographs. But just remember this, both Jesus and Paul quoted in the New Testament from a translation called the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. So here's what I want to share with you. Anthony, could we really know this to be the Word of God? Because the Hebrew Old Testament, the Greek New Testament, Testament with, with Aramaic sprinkled in there, how do we know our English language can pick it up? Because here's what we begin to see, that God miraculously, that God miraculously has preserved His Word and message through the years and through translations. Now, if your translation of the Bible has a recipe for banana pudding or meatloaf in there, I would begin to consider what translation you are, you're looking at. I, I, would, I would question it pretty seriously. But what you're going to find in what I preach ESV or so many other versions, we go back to the earliest copies of Scripture that we have. And in it, God has preserved his very message. So why this book? As we close down this, why this book? We understand how the Old Testament came to be through the prophets of God and the speaking of God and all these wonders and miracles. We understand that the New Testament had these 27 books man, that passed every test it needed to pass. But why this book? Because it is life-changing. Church, hear me, it is life-changing. I love this in Hebrews 4.12. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit of joints and of marrow and discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. Why this book? Because it's the only book in all of creation that is alive and at work to win the hearts of people. Hey, church, you ready to win your heart to Jesus? I love what Priscilla Schreier said. She said this, The Bible is the only book where the author is in love with its reader. Isn't that good? It's the only book where the author is in love with you as you read it. You don't believe it? He still loves you. You can't rationalize your mind? He still loves you. You reject it? The author of this book still loves you. Hebrew 4.12 is in the context of the word of God being spoken or being preached. And when the word of God is being preached, here's what we find in 2 Timothy chapter 3, 16 and 17. Coming off the hills of all scriptures, God breathe. And listen to what Tim, let me remind you what he said. And is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, training, and all righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Now I want you to hear me. If you are looking for a church that only preaches parts of the Bible, or parts of the Bible that are easy to swallow, or, or just to preach and teach self-helps that puff up the ego while starving the spirit. If you're looking for a church that, that will preach in a way that is in nowhere an offense to anyone ever, you might want to find a different place. We unapologetically, and we unashamedly 
preach and teach and stand upon the very word of God. But why? If you why? I want to read an inscription from a book, from a Bible that was found, a Gideon Bible that was found in a hotel room. And listen to someone as they wrote in there. We don't know who did, but listen to the inscription they wrote in this Bible. It's pretty incredible. It said this, that this book is the mind of God, the state of man, the way of salvation, the doom of sinners, and the happiness of believers. Its doctrines are holy. Its precepts are binding. Its histories are true, and its decisions are immutable. Read it to be wise. Believe it to be safe. Practice it to be holy. It, can, it contains light to direct you, food to support you, and comfort to cheer you. It is a traveler's map, the pilgrim's staff. It is the pilot's compass, the soldier's sword, and the Christian's character. Here, Paradise is restored, heaven open, and the gates of hell disclosed. Christ is its grand subject. Our good, its design, and the glory of God, its sin. It should fill the memory, rule the heart, and guide the feet. Read it slowly, frequently, prayerfully. It is a mine of wealth, a paradise of glory, a river of pleasure. Follow its precepts, and it'll lead you to Calvary, to the empty tomb, to the resurrected life of Jesus Christ, and yes, to glory itself forever and forever. Why this book? Because this very book leads us to Jesus. I jotted this down last week. For in it I find the promises of God, the plan of salvation, purpose for our lives, power over sin, the presence of his spirit, and reminder of the place that he has prepared for me when this life is over. I love Dr. Seuss, but he can't offer that. There's no other book, no other religious writing that tells the story of a God who stepped down out of heaven to rescue a creation that has rebelled against him. God who sacrificed the life of his son so that you and I could be with him forever. Why this book? Because it is God-breathed. It is God-inspired. It is the very message and the word of God that you and I have access to today. Thank you again for checking out our podcast. Be sure to subscribe so you can stay up to date on our services. If you'd like to give to support our ministry, you can do that at our website. That's connectchurchpf.com. Hope you enjoyed and have a great week.